Things are going amazing in Texas. Um, we are at Grace Community Baptist Church. Uh, it's really easy to check in on us. Just take your church's website and add TX to the end. So we're gracechurchtx.org, and you can check in on us um, anytime you would like. Uh, the Lord's doing amazing things. So we've, we came in um, last December and just kind of hit the ground running. The people have been very gracious and very patient with us, and the Lord is uh, blessing the work. Our church has doubled in the last 10 months, um, and so uh, we, I told Han this this week, I'm making the full recruiting pitch. If you are elder qualified and available to migrate to Texas, we need you, so Brendan Bates, come on over. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but the Lord is doing amazing things. Um, we're just teaching the word, and the people are growing quickly. And uh, we were actually able to teach some of the Logos program that I taught here here recently on how to study the scripture. And that's been a huge blessing to the church. Um, and so things are going really well. Our town is very much in transition. So we're a, a rural town of corn, cotton, and hay farms, depending on the season. Um, but those are quickly becoming subdivisions. So uh, pray for us as the Lord's bringing particularly a lot of young families to our church that um, our church would grow and be ready to minister to them. Um, and if you have a particular calling to help there, come on over to Texas because the harvest is plentiful. We have a, a corn farm literally across the street from our church that within five years will be 1,200 new houses. So we need workers. So. Yeah, and, and we won't mention that the housing is less expensive, the politics more conservative, and you're within driving distance of Magnolia Farms. We won't mention That's any right. of that because we wouldn't want people to move for the wrong reasons. Right. We are near Chip and JoJo Mega, Mecca. Sorry. So, yeah. All right. Thanks, Eric. Han, would you tell us just a little bit about, I know you've shared already from the pulpit a little bit about what you do. But can you tell us, number one, just a little bit about what you do, the, the industry in which you work, uh, what it's like to be a Christian witness in that industry, and then also, maybe before that, give us an update on your family, including your newest family member. Yeah, well, we have uh, Joshua Benjamin Cho. Uh, he is now 13 days old, and uh, he, he is well indeed, healthy set of lungs, uh, definitely know that. Uh, He's actually sleeping reasonably well for his age, so we're thankful for that. Heather's home with the baby, and uh, yeah, every, everything's great. We had, a, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we had a brief, was it a couple of weeks or last week? I can't even remember, but yeah, it was last week that we had a brief two days out of the house as we were evacuated, but uh, we're back in the house. Everything's good. We're thankful. Everything's great, so we're just joyful, and thanks so much for your prayers and your well wishes, and we're really blessed. Uh, in terms of the industry I work in, I am a transactional corporate lawyer. Uh, I do mergers and acquisitions, equity investments, uh, kind of things of that nature. And I work, I'm a, I'm a dedicated lawyer in-house for a biotech company. And so what we do, we do a lot of um, uh, cancer drugs. We do, uh, you know, our, our desire is to try to treat and help people with uh, various diseases. And, uh, yeah, so it's just been a really uh, uh, a meaningful thing. When I was saved, God saved me out of the entertainment industry when I was uh, an entertainment lawyer. And uh, look, I respect uh, a lot of Christians who want to be a good witness in that industry. It was hard for me uh, staying in that industry just due to the nature of some of the stuff I was dealing with. And I just personally, as a personal conviction, uh, felt increasingly less comfortable with that and ultimately made the switch to healthcare and then biotech. 
And so I've been thankful for that. So that's the type of work uh, that I do. And so a lot of contracts and negotiations. Great, thanks. And then Stan, I wanted to ask you kind of the same question, an update on your family, your work, and then also tell us a little bit about your Bible study. So I've been uh, here at Grace Church for 32 years. Um, I first started coming when um, I came down here to go to college at UCLA. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we've been married for 21 years now, and uh, we have two kids. Uh, they're twin, twin girls, and uh, God has blessed us a lot with, uh, with our marriage and with our family. And I work as, uh, I'm a partner in an engineering firm in Glendale. We do work throughout Los Angeles, and I specialize in foundations, um, so that's my field. Uh, I deal with earthquakes, landslides, liquefaction, uh, things of that sort as it relates to buildings. All right, excellent. Okay, well, our theme for this morning is practical Christianity because, of course, we've been studying the book of James, and the book of James is all about faith in action. So I wanted to start with a question that I think is really practical and one that relates to the time of year that we're in. October has many holidays, Columbus Day, uh, Bosses Day. Uh, there's a few others. Um, but there's a relatively big holiday coming up in just about 11 days at the end of the month. And of course, I'm referring to Reformation Day, uh, the day when kids dress up to celebrate the Reformation and they go around collecting candy in honor of Martin Luther and John Calvin. We can dream, right? We can dream. But I think that's a really practical question that Christians have with regard to how should Christians think about things like Halloween? So I wanted to start with that question for our panel. Uh, any thoughts in terms of what you and your family do for Halloween? Any thoughts in terms of biblical principles that relate to a holiday that in some ways has a lot of fun things associated with it, but it also has some things associated with it that we as Christians would look at and go, ooh, that's not very biblical. Thoughts? I'm happy to pass this microphone <laughs> off. Uh, and, and, uh, well, I will say that, um, you know, the verses that spring to mind for me when talking about this holiday are, is Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, um, ultimately uh, in keeping with certain other aspects of uh, Christian liberty that we talk about in Romans 14 uh, is a major chapter on that. I actually um, based a Sundays in July message on the Romans 14 chapter on the topic of Christian liberty. Um, I do think uh, with that said, even though I think there is some liberty of conscience here, and I think that each individual Christian should form their own convictions in their own conscience with respect to this issue, there is a caution that I would uh, offer, and that is, uh, you know, we also are not to, um, we are to abstain from every kind or appearance or form of evil. And so I think that um, to the extent that one chooses to celebrate that uh, holiday and, you know, having that fun thing with the kids, that we need to make sure we're not having it or adopting or linking ourselves to any 
form or kind or appearance of evil. Um, I think that's really important, and you know, I think that you know, again, individual consciences may differ, but uh, some people have a really sensitive conscience as it pertains to uh, witchcraft or sorcery or things of that nature, which are clearly called out in Scripture as evil things. And so, I think we have to be careful about that. But uh, with that said, uh, you know, I think the two principles in Christian liberty from Romans 14 would be. Uh, basically do not cause your brother to stumble so if you're you know again taking care not to make these big ostentatious displays of it perhaps or you know kind of like uh you know arm twisting all of your friends to participate that that may not be the best call but on the flip side the other concept that comes out of romans 14 is not to look down on your brother with contempt for the use of their christian liberties so i think the other thing to take care of is like to oh well they celebrate halloween so they're, they're so uh carnal uh, you know that that would not be uh, in accordance with romans 14 so that would be my brief kind of answer in terms of how i would say it but i'd love to hear if stan or eric have any thoughts um it's so my encouragement especially to parents would be not to fall off the path to either side. So as Han was just saying, you don't wanna become legalistic. You don't wanna try to bind the conscience either of your children or your friends um, with a kind of legalistic approach to things. Um, the other kind of common area that I see Christian parents make is to try to Christianize it and buy into you know, myths and kind of legends about how it originally was a Christian holiday and all these things. And so don't feel the need to do either of those. Just be honest with your children about it, um, work through it with them, help them think through the contrast between the world and how they approach days like this and how a Christian would approach those things. Um, just speak kind of honestly and even keel about it, and I think you'll do great. Um, one thing that we've done is, um, and this is largely because of, of how we treat our kids for some medical issues, they can't have the candy and things, and so um, we've encouraged them and for the last few years have used as an opportunity to encourage them to bless and encourage others. So they actually like standing at the door, giving out the candy and being an encouragement to the people that come and complimenting them on their costumes and those kind of things. And so we've used it as an opportunity for our kids just practically to serve others. Um, and so it's an idea for you, obviously not a prescription, but that's, that's kind of how we handle it in our home. It's funny because my girls, the first few years, they were so scared of those people knocking on our doors <laughs> that they just stayed away from Halloween period. Um, but, you know, as they got older, uh, I think um, uh, I definitely agree it's a matter of conscience. Uh, if your conscience tells you that you cannot participate in any part of that, then by no means, you know, don't, don't do it. But um, for us, we, there have been times that we actually made it into a Bible study event <laughs> where we invite that uh, people from the Bible study come over and let all their kids to go trick-or-treating together on a Friday night. And we'll walk with them, and there are certain houses that we just avoid, uh, just by things look. And um, But, yeah, really, I, and there are other kids on our block that our girls have grown up with, and we try to keep those relationships, and especially those are people from other churches, uh, that we know well, we try we keep them together and keep those relationships uh, together as much as we can, and we try to take them out and just walk with them together and and uh, just so that they can have fun together too. So, yeah, just adding to that a little bit, I think as Christians we want to make sure that we steer clear of anything that smacks of idolatry or immorality, and both of those themes, the sort of the satanic and the immoral 
sometimes come to the surface when it's Halloween. I think as parents, uh, you have a real opportunity to talk to your kids about the biblical difference between good and evil because the kind of the world's idea of what evil is as celebrated or as promoted during the Halloween season is a little bit different than what the Bible would describe as evil. Certainly, the Bible's description of evil would encompass all of that, but evil in Scripture is sin, and sin is that which falls short of pleasing God, which is something that doesn't require dressing up in some sort of costume in order to be a sinner. So helping your kids understand the difference between good and evil, I think, is really important. I agree with everything you men have said in terms of it is a conscience issue. In fact, there's, this is the um, phone a friend moment. There is a great article on Grace to Use website called Should Christians Celebrate Halloween that I would recommend to you. Uh, you can find it really easy with a, a Google search. And uh, that article uh, encourages Christians to exercise what it calls cautious wisdom. And I think that's exactly what you men are saying. And those biblical principles are found in Romans 14, also in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Uh, Han mentioned Colossians 2. If you decide not to celebrate Halloween in a way that sort of takes your kids around the neighborhood, I think, again, that's totally your call as a parent. My one just practical suggestion would be that you do something fun with your family on that day. Uh, I grew up in a family where my parents didn't want us to go trick-or-treating, which, again, was their prerogative. And there were a couple years when we kind of hid in the back room and pretended like we weren't home. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that. That's not fun for anybody. It's just that awkward moment where you hear the doorbell, and then you're kind of like, I think if we talk in hushed tones, they'll go away. Um, that's probably not the best alternative. That changed. My parents started taking us, actually, of all places, to Chuck E. Cheese on Halloween, which was super fun and made it into something that was no longer a holiday that we kind of were all wanting to just get through. It made it something that was a highlight for our family. So that's just a, a practical parenting tip that, at least growing up for me and my brother, uh, turned Halloween from something that we didn't look forward to to something that we actually anticipated. But again, the Grace to You article is the one that I would recommend on that. Okay, I want to open it up and see if you have any questions. If you just raise your hand, uh, you can ask the question, and then I'll repeat the question for the sake of the recording. Yes, sir. So the question is, how does our church handle church discipline when we learn that someone is living in unrepentant sin? Uh, just one follow-up question for you, sir. Is, is this person a member of our church, or are they just somebody who attends our church? Well, just a, or just a general. Okay, just a general question. Um, I asked that follow-up question because the way we would handle it might be a little bit different if the person's a member as opposed to a non-member. But... Um, how do we handle church discipline uh, situations? Han, you want to start on that? Well, I'm trying to find the verse. Um, but basically, uh, the key distinction, if a person 
goes through step four church discipline, you know, in Matthew 18, it says you're to treat them as a, as an unbeliever, as a tax collector. Um, and I think the key distinction to determine is if they still insist, even after being church disciplined on calling themselves a Christian or not. I think that's a very important distinction because if they stop calling themselves a Christian and are admitting they're not really a Christian, I think at that point, um, based on again, my understanding of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 4, uh, I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, um, I have to find the verse in 1 Corinthians, but it talks about the so-called brother. And, uh, you know, in terms of if they're not a Christian, then you treat them like not a Christian and you, you give the gospel to them. You, you know, you love your enemies. You, you, you heap coals upon their head. You, you, wanna, you want them to repent truly and, and to become a Christian. Um, I do think that, uh, again, in terms of treating them as a tax collector, if they insist on continuing to claim the name of Christ, there's more warrant for a staying away because I think that's the admonition in Scripture. And uh, I'm going to um, search for that verse and come back to you and give it to you. But uh, those are my kind of initial thoughts on that matter, having done some study. But Eric, do you have any thoughts? Um, I won't speak to how the church does since uh, I'm not here, but I would say for you as church members, I would encourage you um, to embrace church discipline. It's, it's hard to hear someone say that, but the truth is this is God's ordained plan for bringing about the restoration of a believer that's fallen into sin. Like the goal of church discipline is not to put someone out of the church. The goal of church discipline is to restore a brother or sister who has fallen or even dove into sin back to right fellowship and back to uh, a pure communion with the Lord. So don't be shy about it. You know, don't resist it. Don't um, think, oh, this is a terrible thing. We can't do this. Like, it's hard. Yes, absolutely. And we don't want to be eager for it to happen. But we do, when it needs to happen, need to embrace that this is God's plan for how to restore such a one. Um, and there are plenty of times that we need that. And and I would remind you in that, that church discipline is happening all the time. It just, it's the extreme cases you hear about, and that's what we think about when we hear church discipline. But when I'm talking to you and see you sin, I say, hey, brother, I don't know if you noticed this, but you were doing this. And you say, oh, thanks for pointing that out. That's great. That's church discipline. Like, that's the beginning steps. And we see that, and we think about it, and we think, oh, okay, that's great. We love that. We'll love all of the steps of church discipline just as much because they're just as divinely ordained to bring about the restoration of a fallen believer. So as much as it seems like something you want to lean away from, actually, I would encourage you to lean into it and to really support and pray for your elders when they're thinking through these kind of higher level, second, third, fourth step issues when it comes to church discipline. Thank you, Eric. And now, I found that reference. It wasn't 1 Corinthians 4. It's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And that really il illustrates the principle in Matthew 18, where we talk about church discipline uh, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, 
uh, and ultimately that's the kind of anchor key passage when it comes to church discipline, which is indeed commanded in Scripture. So that's, uh, that would be the answer I would give. Is it would Again, the, the purpose of church discipline is the purity of the church. People who claim the name of Christ but are acting in an overtly immoral way are a stain upon the church, and they're defaming the name of Christ that they claim. And so such a person, uh, again, we are not even to eat with such a one. If a person acknowledges, okay, you know what, maybe I'm not a Christian, maybe they stop saying that, I think then there's more warrant to treat them as you know with as you would any unbeliever in terms of evangelism and uh, trying to bring the gospel to them. And again, even even the one that continues to cling to the name of Christ, you would call that person continually to repent. I think you know that would be something that you you would still do. But Nate, I, I know uh, you you've actually done some work on this as well. Uh, you know, any wh- wh- what did we miss? <laughs> no, I think both of those answers were excellent. Uh, the Matthew 18 process, and I, I know we're at Grace Community Church, so everyone here probably is already familiar with the four steps that Jesus outlined in those verses. But just to reiterate that, step one is if someone sins against you, go to your brother. So it's the, the step of a one-on-one confrontation, confrontation that's done in a gracious manner. But it is, even as Eric said, that first step of saying, hey, uh, here's something that I've noticed, and I don't think it honors the Lord, and I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And then Jesus goes on to say, if they still don't repent, then you take two or three others as witnesses. That's step two. That step can actually last for a long time, just practically. And then if that still results in no repentance and no change, then step three is to bring it to the elders That at Grace Church usually takes place through our fellowship groups. So within this fellowship group context, you would bring it to me or Han or Harry or Mark, our elders here, and then we would take it to our entire board of elders. And uh, there would be engagement then with the person. If they still don't repent, uh, that's when the name gets read to the church. And if they still don't repent after that, then they're put out of the church as Jesus commands in Matthew 18. So those are the four steps. Just to reiterate what Eric already highlighted, the goal of church discipline is restoration. And I think really to think of it as a restoration process rather than a discipline process. Discipline sounds so negative. Restoration is the positive side of that. The goal is to rescue. In fact, What Pastor Harry taught us from James chapter 5, he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways rescues his soul from death, that is the heart behind the church discipline and restoration process. And, And we as brothers and sisters in Christ, what a joy it is for us to see someone who's heading towards danger recognize and repent of that and be restored. So there's a lot of joy in this process and we trust the Lord to, to work through it. And I'll even say I, I've had the joy of that seemingly in the initial stages of the joy of that where a few months ago we read the name of a brother uh, who's a dear friend of mine and, uh, you know, just a number of us uh, pursued that brother after step three, uh, even as we had been the whole time. But, um, you know, it seems like he's returning. And uh, so that I pray that, you know, uh, that will be uh, we will see the full fruit of that. So it is a joy when that happens. Um, it, it is amazing that how God works in each one of our lives. Uh, for being here for 30 some odd years, 
I know of people who have actually gone through the fourth step, you know, have, having their name read. Uh, they cut off communication with everybody within the church, but then a few years later, you know, our Bible study went to a Dodger game and ran into her, and people just surrounded her with love, and uh, she came back to church, and she's an active member of our church now. It's uh, truly amazing. I, I think a lot of times we don't see the restoration side of things um, because a lot of times they just want to cut off all communications, but you still continue to, as a friend, as a believer, continue to pray and look for opportunities to uh, to reach out and, and hopefully God will continue to work in their hearts and change their lives. Yeah, praise the Lord. Okay, other questions? Go ahead. Okay, so just to repeat the question, the question was about Christianity and capitalism, specifically about Christian businessmen in the marketplace and price setting. If you know that the price is going to drop, do you have a moral obligation to drop your price before the market de demands that you drop your price? And then I appreciated the fact that you mentioned Thomas Aquinas. Always good to get a 13th century theologian in there. Uh, of course, at the end of the day, we don't necessarily care what Thomas thinks. We care what the Bible thinks. But I do appreciate that. So bonus points. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd love for Han and Stan to talk about this a little bit since both of you are in the business world. So uh, just talk maybe even more generally about as a Christian in the marketplace, how do biblical principles apply within a capitalistic framework? Um, so I do work in a very interesting field. Uh, so whenever a project that I deal with, I'm mostly buildings from mid-rise to high-rise buildings, um, people don't want to spend their money on foundations. <laughs> so I'm working on a job with uh, Frank Gehry. He's getting paid $20 million just to have his name on it. And uh, I'm making a fraction of that. <laughs> um, so... Um, Yet at the same time, as you all know, foundation for anyone, uh, for any building, is critical. And so it is for our lives as well. You know, what, how we dress here on Sunday mornings, uh, how we look, the way we look, none of those things really matter if your heart is not right with the Lord, if your life is not anchored in Christ. Um, so that has to always be uh, the back of my mind whenever I approach a project dealing with clients, I need to honor Lord, the Lord um, no matter what. Um, so there are things that uh, we do things based on contracts. So if there's something that they agreed upon, 
uh, we have you honor that, uh, and we expect the client to honor that as well. Um, if they come back and ask for a financial break, uh, we do do that from a time-to-time -time basis. And one thing that we do um, as a consulting firm, uh, we don't get auto projects. They are more than welcome to shop around, but we do try to do our best to keep our clients happy. And we do put forth that effort to maintain that working relationship with our clients. And uh, But we know times that there are times that are hard and uh, we do try to come alongside clients who might have a financial burden that they are trying to meet, and, and we do uh, take it from case-to-case -case basis. So Proverbs 22:16 says, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And uh, this really is in the vein of many verses, often in the Proverbs or elsewhere in the Old Testament typically, that talk about the notion of oppression and I think that this concept is really important to grasp when we think about doing business because uh, if you look all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you see, you see free market economies for the most part. You, you don't see socialism. That, that's just not, people have argued, oh, the early church, you know, that, that's a form of socialism. If you look in Acts, you know, they, they sold everything in common. Well, no, that's not socialism, which is imposed from above by authority. That's a voluntary act. You see these people giving free will offerings where they're offering up property that they own and they want to give that, you know, in, in a charitable, merciful donation to other poor and needy members of the church. It's a voluntary thing. It's not socialism or communism at all. And so when you look at, again, the Bible and you look at the economies there, there is this presumption. If you look at even the Gospels, you see Jesus talking numerous times about, you know, the free exchange of money. And so if you're a Christian businessman, you know, operating in the free market, there is a lot of, um, you, you can take a lot of comfort from that because if you offer your wares for sale for a certain price, if you set them too high, you're going to go out of business, right? And, and so there's a natural tendency that you're going to have to want to set your prices in a reasonable market fashion. Now, when you look at the concept of oppression, I can recommend to you a really good book called What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung. And he goes through all of the various examples of what, you know, what, what is this oppression? What does this look like? What, what does, uh, you know, what, what does it mean, these Old Testament verses about justice and the poor? And by and large, what he concludes, and I agree, having done my own independent study, that, you know, what we're talking about in terms of oppression or justice is making sure that there is a fair and level playing field in general. It's not, you know, this is such an important concept because today our modern society would argue oppression is any form of privilege, right? That's the, you know, this is the notion of identity politics, of critical theory that is kind of in the air where it's like, oh, if you have privilege of any kind, then you have an obligation to uh, give and, and to kind of lower yourself. Well, we would disagree. We would say that if you have privilege, if you have blessings, I would say would be a better word, then yes, you have a higher accountability for those blessings to those whom much is given, much is expected, Luke 12, 48. But it's not a question of justice in terms of you are obligated to, you know, to do this or that. You, it's, it's really more a question of mercy and charity, even as what Stan was saying, you know, a lot of times their business will help 
you know, people that are in need or who come across a need. That, that's great. You know, we, we are called to be merciful and to be charitable and to be open-handed. And so, you know, to the extent, again, if, you let, if you're a businessman and you have like a monopolistic position, then you have to be much more on guard against not oppressing the poor. You know, if, if, if you've got a customer coming to you and they're buying it, you know the prices are going to go down and you know that customer cannot afford it, you may choose in that situation, hey, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm going to give you this to you at cost or whatever the case may be as, your, as the opportunity arises. But that would be a free will offering to the Lord. I don't think that even if you know the cost is going to go down, you know, assuming you're not in a monopolistic position, there's a free exchange, you know, you're not abusing, uh, you know, your position in any way. That's not oppression. I think, again, if you're selling your wares at a market price, then people are free to buy it or sell it as they choose. And frankly, the flip side of that is you never know when, you know, going down the road, you've already bought goods at a certain sunk cost and suddenly the market plummets, then you're stuck selling them at a loss. So, you know, the various times, ebbs and flows of that kind of marketplace, you know, as the risk taker in the business, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to sometimes take the profit from a, a good time to buffer yourself against the, the losses you might take in the future. So, again, I think the key is to focus on this notion of oppression. What is oppression? And if you look through the Old Testament, again, I think it's a notion of a kind of... Um, you know, a really, um, you're, you're stacking the deck against other people, like you're using unequal weights and measures. That's, that's condemned throughout the scriptures. Yeah, Eric and I both work for nonprofits, right? <laughs> I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit. Yeah, right here. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, so the question has to do with First uh, Thessalonians five, eighteen. In everything, give thanks. And what do we do when we encounter things like pain in our big toe? Uh, maybe we stub our toe, or maybe there's other aches and pains that we're encountering during the week. How do we give thanks in those kinds of things? So, I know I preached the message, but I'm going to let Eric take the first shot. Um, one, I would say, you know, you know, because we've been in Bible study with you that our children have had significant health concerns. Um, and our the first time we were here at church, we were taking the parenting class. And Chris Hamilton came in and I, I knew who he was, but, you know, not much more than that. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, the chairman of the elders is coming in and. Uh, and then he announces, I need the parents of Calvin Dodson to come down. And I just thought, oh, man, like, did he bite somebody? Like, you know, what happened? They're going to realize that I really need this parenting class so much more. Um, and Calvin had had a seizure in, in the nursery here. And when I came in, he was blue and not moving. Um, and... You know, there are paramedics and ambulances because the church does an amazing job at caring for those things. Um, and it just started what was for us a two-year process of um, suffering, really, and watching our kids suffer. Um, and we just learned in those moments 
to rejoice in the Lord and what we knew about him. And so it was just an amazing work of the Lord. As I was following the ambulance that day, my wife was on the ambulance and I hadn't seen him move yet before they put him in. Um, I just remember thinking, Lord, thank you for nine months because he was the happiest little baby boy and he brought so much joy to our lives. And then kind of my immediate focus switched to when I get to that hospital, help me help my wife because, you know, we've only had him for nine months. Um, and that just carried us through. And it was, it was so great because when I got there, she had had the same prayers on the way to the hospital. And so it was just a great to see how the Lord had worked in us um, because I don't think before that I would have known that kind of peace. Um, and so you learn to embrace the peace that suffering reveals. You can't know that kind of peace without knowing that kind of suffering. And so you learn to rejoice in the Lord and you learn to use those moments to press you towards the anticipation of the kingdom to come that is promised and knowing that no matter what evil you face in this life, we serve a good God and he's working all these things together. So in those moments when I can't see before my eyes how my nine-month-old baby looking blue and lifeless is good, I know because I have a sure word, more sure than what I see on that table, I have a sure word that says he is working all things together for your good. And that includes this thing. And so in those moments when you can't see the good, you have to train your mind to think on the good. And that takes taking every thought captive. And as a practical encouragement to you, I would say if you are not doing this when life is calm and peaceful, you're not going to be able to do it when life is hard. So when you're not facing trials, train yourself to set your mind on things above, as Colossians 1 says, where Christ is. When you roll out of the bed in the morning, you think, I'm getting up today because God has ordained the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night, and it's daytime, and he is a God of order, and he has given my life order, and I'm going to praise him for that. And you learn to think that way so that when the trial comes, you're not thinking, okay, how do I think this way? That's become the habit. I, I tell people it, it's like when you learn to tie your shoes. You learn some method, right? You learned loop, swoop, and pull or, you know, one of those kind of jingles to tie your shoes. Well, now when you are rushing because you overslept in the morning to get up and go, you don't stop and think loop, swoop, and pull, right? But you did it so many times that when it was difficult and when you needed to be able to do it fast and in a hurry, it's just natural. I would apply that to how you set your mind on things above. If you can't set your mind on things above as you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you're not going to be able to set your mind on things above when you're facing trial or having pain or enduring suffering. So practice it before it's game time. Yeah, Eric, that was a really helpful word. Um, I think just one thing to add to that is in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul has just gotten done talking about the fact that 
Christ is going to come back and rapture his church. That's at the end of chapter four. Chapter five is about the destruction of this world system and the day of wrath that's coming on all unbelievers. That's the first part of chapter five. And when you think about the difference between what we deserve and what we receive in Christ, yeah, when you stub your toe in the morning or hit your head, I mean, that hurts, right? Um, it's a, a relatively small trial in comparison to the big trials of life, but, but it does hurt. And in that moment, I think it's helpful to remember the pain I'm feeling right now is nothing compared to the pain I deserve. And because of God's grace, I look forward to a future where there will be no pain. And that enables us to be thankful in those moments. And then what we've been learning in James, James 1, consider it all joy when you encounter trials because even the small little things are part of what God uses to conform us into the image of Christ. All right, Eric, you're on that side of the room. I've chosen a few from this side. Can you point to somebody over on that side of the room? Yeah, Jeff, great question. So the, the question was, when it comes to Christian songs that we might sing during a worship time, during a praise time, what if there are songs that have good lyrics and good music, but the writer of that song, the composer, is associated with a ministry that has bad theology? Does that affect how we would think about singing that song? I think Proverbs tells us to consider the end of the fool. And so um, if somebody's ends are uh, unbiblical and anti-God, then um, I wouldn't rejoice in the things that they use that seem to be pro-God. Um, I would evangelize them and I would encourage them to growth and I would call that confession to bear on their conscience. Um, but I also wouldn't uh, celebrate them in the same way, if we had a secular musician who was just really good at music, um, I would appreciate their gifts, um, but I wouldn't fill my mind with their lyrics and their things that are anti-God. Um, and so, yeah, I would just say consider the end. What are, they, what are they working towards, and are you working toward the same thing? If not, I would avoid them because there are plenty of Christian lyrics and songs that are excellent and sung well that aren't promoted by heretics. Yeah, I look at Romans 14, 13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And I think that, um, you know, when I think about this, this isn't just like um, casual private conduct typically uh it's not like you're having a conversation with a friend and you're talking about um 
you know, something innocuous and someone rushes up and say, you're causing me to stumble. That, that, that's not that type of situation. But when you're talking about public worship, that is kind of more of a public, you know, you're, you're much more accountable and you've got a much greater chance of putting a, placing a stumbling block in a brother's way when you're dealing with public conduct. And uh, I think the concern, you know, to Eric's point and, re, you know, just kind of building upon that a little bit, um, you know, if you know that there's really bad theology coming out of that camp, you know, oftentimes, a, you know, certain worship songs can act as a gateway drug almost to this other theology or other songs by the same people that aren't so theologically sound. And in fact, uh, there was a great Q&A that they did um, at the Truth Matters Conference these last few days where this specific question came up in the context of Hillsong and uh, Jesus Culture by Bethel Redding. And uh, I think the, the panelists gave a great answer and, uh, you know, gave, expressed a real caution about it for this very reason. So that's what I would say. But Stan, maybe any other thoughts? Yeah, growing up in the 80s, um, <laughs> we used to listen to Amy Grant a lot. And, uh, and most of you know that she divorced and married someone else. And that was a big topic. Uh, so do we support her songs? I mean, she was a very talented and uh, um, have some really good songs. Uh, I would tend to stay focused on the words and the lyrics and how biblical they are. Uh, obviously, uh, some of those uh, songs are just incredibly good in terms of uh, theology. So uh, I would try to stay focused on that. All right. I haven't heard the name Amy Grant in a long time. That uh, it takes me back. Okay, last question. Um, so I work in residential life, and a big thing is making people feel comfortable, but with the gender identity and pronouns, how do you balance making someone feel comfortable and like accepted in the community, but with your conviction of not maybe agreeing with their choices when it comes to Okay, so the question has to do with gender identity and Christians in the workplace. If we're trying to make unbelievers feel comfortable in terms of serving them as part of perhaps a service industry, uh, how does that then relate to using pronouns that they prefer, if, even if those pronouns don't match with their actual biological sex? So thoughts on that? Let the audio record reflect Han was playing hot potato with the microphone. <laughs> uh, um, I think consider what you're bound to as an employee. Um, you're called as a Christian employee to have a, a faithful testimony of submitting to your authorities at work and those kind of things where it doesn't bump into the law of God. So in the same way with Christian government, we would submit to the authorities in government where it doesn't bump into the law of God. And in that case, we would obey the law of God and still submit to government. So greatest example is obviously Jesus Christ. He was faithful. He didn't bow the knee to Caesar, but he still submitted even to the point of death to the government. Um, and I would say, I would encourage you to think through ways that you can submit to your uh, boss and to have clear lines about where this violates the law of God. And in that case, you obey the law of God and submit to your boss, even if it means losing your job. Um, I would say, uh, particularly with that issue, 
my personal approach, and this is not to bind your conscience, but to give you an idea to think about, would be to call them by their name. These names are legal entities. They can change them however they want. Um, I would have no problem calling Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, if he's legally changed his name. I would have great problem calling him, her, um, because I think that's untrue. Their name is true as it's determined by law, and so I would stick to the names. Um, me personally, that's how I would do it. Um, but it's definitely something to think through deeply and come to conviction about where your line is before you're um, facing the decision of whether or not I've been commanded to cross that line. You want to have that conviction set. Um, and then when it comes to it, stand on your convictions and trust the Lord that whatever comes out of it, you're going to honor the Lord. I look at 1 Corinthians 13 and uh, in particular talking about love and the definition of love. And I'll focus on verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think in a secular employer kind of environment, you know, I think Eric's given good counsel, processing through what your own convictions are. And I think it's one thing, you know, I think there's a lot of Christians who might have the idea that they need to go around and, uh, you know, maybe they need to denounce this or that. And I don't think that's necessarily called for or required in a secular work setting where you're called to submit to your employer, whether reasonable or unreasonable. But for me, a line can be crossed where that employer is trying to require you to rejoice in unrighteousness or rejoice in a lie. And I think sometimes, especially here in California, you're seeing more and more of that where you're, you're like required to participate in, you know, certain uh, celebrations or, or things. And for me, that would be a, a line for, again, I'm not trying to bind your conscience either. So, but I think that would be distinction. Um, you know, I want to do my evangelism on my own time in the company and, you know, form relationships where I can bring the gospel to people. I don't want to necessarily steal time from my employer evangelizing on the job, if you will. Um, but I also want to be careful that I'm not, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm being submissive to my employer, as Eric was saying. But at the same time, for me, I, I, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And I think that's going to be a line where many of us in the secular workplace are increasingly going to be uh, kind of having to navigate. Well, hey, these were really, really good questions this morning. We are out of time. If your question didn't get answered, I have news. You can come tonight and you can have Pastor John answer your question, okay? So, um, but thank you to our panelists. Thanks to Eric and to Han and to Stan. I'm going to... I'm going to ask Stan, if you would, to close us in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the body of Christ. Uh, there are, uh, we all meet each uh, members of one another, and uh, may you just continue to help us to grow in our like-mindedness, uh, that we would honor you uh, from a pure heart. Uh, may we always uh, demonstrate love toward one another, uh, that as we see a brother stumbling, uh, that we would reach out and uh, warn and try to correct and restore such a one. And uh, thank you, Father, uh, for you have done so much for us. May we uh, be imitators of you and to be a light to those around us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.